0: So we're in the book of Colossians. Uh, the issue that we have been dealing with and we're going to look at it again today and jump into chapter 3 is all the different streams that came together to make up something broadly called the Colossian heresy. And one of the streams that made up the Colossian heresy was a teaching by a group of people that we would call the hyper or the uber-spiritualist who said something like this, it's okay to believe in Christ, it's okay to hold to Christ, kind of, sort of, if you want to start there, but, but really, if you want to be spiritual, you must, we saw in chapter 2, do, do these things. You must, first of all, treat your body very harshly. You've got to go on long fast, and you've got to beat yourself, you've got to do this and do that, and you've got to deny yourself. And Because as you do that, you earn favor with the God who cannot be defined, and somehow maybe you may earn his or her favor. So you've got to be ultra ascetic. And the second thing you've got to do is you've got to realize that that there are angel intermediaries that bring you into the presence of God. I mean, it's okay to believe in Jesus. And you say that there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal God, but, but we, we, don't, we don't buy that. We, we believe that you've got to decide which angel mediator is going to bring you into the presence of the pure essence of God. So it's, it's okay to believe in Jesus, but not, not, not really. And the third thing you've got to do is, is, is you've got to be people who, who are egocentric in your and having visions that are untethered to the apostolic message. And these visions that you have are the final authority in your life. It's all about crass subjectivity and egocentric thinking. Uh, so you've got to treat your body harshly. You've got to have angel guides. You've got to have these visions. And the result of that, Paul says, it puffs you up with pride. But but even more destructive, he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, that if you buy into this uber-spirituality, this hyper-spirituality that divorces your reality from Christ and downgrades Christ and really minimizes Christ, if you do that, you have lost connection with the head whose name is Jesus. And this head nourishes the body through its joints and ligaments so that it grows up in him. And so Paul says, be aware. Be very careful about about these things. You've got to be people who understand the glory and the goodness and the majesty of Christ. Now, if you talk to people today, and I have conversations with people, and sometimes they'll say this statement, and I'm going to let you fill in the blank. I am not religious, but I am spiritual. Yeah, you said it. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And what they're saying is, I, I'm, I'm not into organized religion, and I'm not into stand up and quoting, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, and the universal holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, amen. I'm not, I'm not into defined doctrinal issues and, and, and a, a body of truth, but I'm into some type of uber-spirituality that really cannot be defined, but it's very personal to me. Therefore, I am not religious, but I am spiritual. That's become a mantra. This past week, I read an article that I, it just, it, it just hit me with force. Uh, every year, UCLA uh, does a freshman survey of 184 colleges and universities in America. And one of the questions on this survey is, are you religiously affiliated with any church or synagogue or body, you know, any recognized religious body? And in this survey uh, that, was, that was done year after year, and in 1985-86, 10% of freshmen said that they were unaffiliated. Two years ago... It was 31%. I want you to stop. That's 300% increase. And the, the, the thesis of this article is that, you know, there's a guy named Win Jennings Bryan who ran for president on the Democrat ticket three times, and he was a very outspoken man, and he was an evangelical, and he gave this famous speech in 1921 where he says that our children are losing their faith when they go to university, and godless professors teach them godless things, and they depart from the foundation of the living God. And the article thesis is, we're not losing our kids in college, we're losing them in middle school and high school. 300% right? And when and them said, I will say that, 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 that part of the problem, listen to me, parents, this is fall weekend, a lot of people are gone, so maybe you can get the word out. Uh, parents, when AAU teams become more important than getting your kids in Sunday school, that's bad. You're, you're, of course, everybody on the AAU is going to be an All American and play pro ball, which is a bunch of junk, but you buy it as parents. We're, we're not very smart. So, so when that becomes more important than getting kids to Sunday school and getting them taught the Bible, you're, you're, you are not doing your duty if you call yourself a Christian parent. So you've you got to set the bar. You've got to live it out. But also, I, I thought about that, and I thought about this church, and, and I, I, I rejoice, and I'm very glad in age-stage ministries. I love our children's ministry. And I'm going to go to Fall Family Festival this Friday, I'm going to dress up, and I'm going to have a great time. But as we do these children's ministries, though, we preach Christ. I love our middle school ministry. I love the fact that we took 130 kids plus 30 adult chaperones on a, on a middle school retreat just three weeks ago. And they were taught the Bible. They are taught about Jesus. I love our, our high school ministry. And by the way, 130 Middle schoolers and 30 adults, probably not enough adults, just thinking out loud. It probably should be one-on-one, that type thing. But anyway, I I love our high school ministry. I love our campus outreach college ministry. And this weekend we have about 150 to 60 people on retreat, learning about Jesus, hearing the gospel. I rejoice in that. And see, we're about passing the baton to the next generation. That's what we're about. And that's who we are. I love Palmetto Christian Academy. And and helping 600 kids develop a Christian world and life view that embraces everything under the banner of Jesus Christ where they talk about Christ without fear or intimidation and they learn the Bible, learn good theology. So these things thrill my heart. And so I just want to rehearse with you as we think about Colossians and the the uber-spiritualist, the hyper-spiritualist. Just walk with you through our our mission statement, which which I, I really like. It's because I wrote it, but I like it. He says, I helped write it. Equipping disciples to pursue Christ passionately to impact the culture. It's very simple. Equip, pursue Christ, impact. See, we, we want to equip people because the equipment process is ongoing, b- because of, of the reality of the encroaching worldly environment, and because of sin, we have to always preach the gospel to ourselves and understand the ramifications of the gospel. For example, in First Timothy chapter 1, it, it says this. Regarding Paul leaving Timothy in Ephesus, he says, verse 3, As I urged you to to remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God which is by faith. He says, Timothy, stay there and, and, and just teach people the Scripture. Teach them the reality of Christ and and, and tell them to get away from genealogies and myths and silliness and and to have a stewardship of daily living based upon faith in Jesus. It's ongoing. Well, another pastoral epistle, Titus chapter 1 verse 5, writing to a young man who's been charged to stay in Crete, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains in order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So you, 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 you put things in order. You, you, you do this. Or the, the book of Colossians. We've been studying this book. And, and one of the issues in Colossae was they talked about mystery religions. And they, they talked about the key words that would open up the door to spiritual insight and you have to have this mystery word and that mystery word and, and, and Paul just thunders that. He says, you want to know about mystery words? Do you want to know about words that open up the mind of God and the heart of God? He says, I will tell you the mystery. I'm going to tell you the mystery. He said, listen to me. So Paul says this. He says, I've become a steward of that which is given to me to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The mystery. He says this, on down he says, to, to, to show you the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we, we talk to each other. The mystery, the, the word, the glory, the majesty of Christ. So we equip each other with the gospel continuously. So 500 years ago, Martin Luther began the Reformation inadvertently, wasn't? He he, he was addressing issues in the medieval church. And and so, really the issue today and then is is my standing before God, my justification, a gift of a righteous status because of who Jesus is in my life and what he's done for me? Or is it a process of becoming more holy? a synergistic process in which I participate. Is it by grace alone or is it through my works and somehow mixed in with what Christ has done for me? This is the gospel. This is heresy. That simple, the gospel. Salvation by faith alone through the work of Christ alone. There's a man named Jodois van Ludenstein, which is a really cool name. Jedoius van Ludenstein, who in 16 and 74, 100 years after, or 10 years, 110 years after John Calvin died, came up with the statement. He said, the, 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 the church must always be reformed, which means based upon the teachings of the Reformation, and continuously being reformed by the Word of God. The, the, the church is reformed, living on the, the basis of the Reformation doctrines, which was A recovery of the gospel and continuously being reformed by the Word of God, Uh, and and that's what we say. We we say we want to be people who sit under the authority of the Bible. And so so Luther, Luther said this two weeks ago. Luther's issue was, how can I know I am loved by God? He says when when he had this incredible struggle about does God love me. People say Luther just just love God, and he said. I murmured, really, in my heart, I said, I don't love God. I hate him because the standards that, that, that people tell me I must attain, I can never reach. How can I know that I am loved by God? Many of us have heard of Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc was a young woman who led the French to victory over the British, and then she was captured. She was only 19, 19 years old. And so she was put on trial, not for being a combatant against the British, but being, she was put on trial by the medieval church for being a heretic. And this is one of the charges brought against her. This is from the trial. This woman sins when she says she is as certain as of being received into heaven as if she were already there. How dare you say that God loves you? because the church tells you, you don't know. See, that, that's where Luther said, I hated God. She says, said, you know, once they says, seeing that on this earthly journey, no pilgrim can ever know if he is worthy of glory or of punishment, which the sovereign judge alone can tell. So that they burnt her alive at the age of 19 because she had the, the, the audacity to say, I believe that I'm loved by the living God with an eternal love through Christ. I mean, it's amazing. So, so, the, so the Reformation answers the question, how can I know that I am loved of God? And that's why Luther said, when I discovered the gospel of grace, the, the work that Christ did on the cross for my sin, and I understood that I'm saved by faith alone in what Christ has done for me, I felt as if I'd gone through the doors of paradise. What a statement. And, and so you can have a continuous present tense Peace in the midst of conflict. Let me tell you, we all know as we read and study and think, as the Westminster Confession says, that we're involved in a continuous and irreconcilable war. We will never be done with sin. We struggle. And so we're never done with sin. the, The Bible says it's a continuous, an irreconcilable war. And he goes on and says that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you overcome, but it's still this is a war. So, so you, you, you come to the battlefield every day and sometimes you're bloodied, but, but, you, but you realize that by the grace of Christ, you continue on. This is what Luther wrote years after he understood grace. He says, when the devil throws our sins up to us, And declares that we deserve death and hell and judgment. We ought to speak to the devil thusly. I don't talk to the devil very much. I don't necessarily advise it, but this is what Luther did. I say to the devil, I admit, devil, that I deserve death and hell and judgment. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. That's beautiful. Present day peace and hope. So we, we equip people to think biblically. But the, the next statement is, is that we Pursue Christ passionately. We pursue Him. We, we, we go hard for Christ. We, we want to know Him. Um, so, so there is it's an action word. The, the, so many action words in the Bible. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. 2 Peter 3, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. These are action words. And one thing that I, I, I wish that we could really think more about is that there's a word in the Old Testament. used time after time. And it's the word Wait. Wait. And when I hear wait, sometimes I think passivity, just sitting there, but, 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 but no, wait in, in, in the Old Testament. There's a quote from an Old Testament scholar that says, waiting is hope, confidence, and patience combined. It's looking to the Lord. It's trusting Him. The true God is thus distinguished from the idols, for none of the idols can perform, nor have they ever performed fearful deeds on behalf of their devotees, whereas Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the true God, can control all of creation and cause it to respond to his will. So, so for example, we read this famous passage in Isaiah chapter 40. It says this, verse 31, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not go weary. They shall walk and not faint. So those who wait upon the Lord. It doesn't mean to be quiet. It means to pursue Him. It means to look to Him with confidence and joy and expectation. The same word is used in uh, Isaiah 64, verse 4. It says this. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You pursue him, you wait for him, you look to him in confidence and strength and joy. You, you look to him with expectation. God, do that which only you can do. And then verse seven says this in the same chapter. It talks about this. This is a powerful verse. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. Did you hear that? Who rouses himself to take hold of you. There is no one who calls upon your name, which is a form of waiting. You call upon the Lord who rouses himself to take hold of you. So, so when, I, when, when I think biblically, when I understand that there is a great God who is triune and he's spoken and he loves me and his way is good, then I want to rouse myself to know him. To, to obey Him, to, to, walk, to walk in His way. So this, this pursuing. And then the, the next one is impacting. To impact the culture around us. Uh, we are compelled to do something. So we think, we emotively worship, pursue, and we impact our culture. I was reading a letter recently written uh, in 1905 or six by one a woman named Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India. She was from Ireland. She was in India for 55 years, 55 years. She worked in Southern India and worked primarily with, with women who were outcast and orphaned children. And so she wrote this, this letter as a plea to the church in her home country, England, and It's entitled "The Traffic of the Temple." I'm just going to read about two paragraphs, but it's, it's so powerful. The background is that um, in Amy Carmichael's day, and still today at times, uh, the, the unwanted children who were from the lower caste were taken to the temple, Hindu temple, and they were raised in the temple as uh, laborers. They would gather wood, and they would cook, and they would do certain things in the temple. And they had no education, they had no rights, no privilege, they were treated as non-humans. It was a horrible practice. And so Amy Carmichael's heart is broken over this, and so she writes a letter pleading for people to pray. Why don't you just listen to this? First of all, she talks about how much she loves India. She says, we think of the real India that we love, of mothers who were patient and kind and raising their children. The true India is sensitive and very gentle. There is a wisdom in its ways, nonetheless wise because it is not the wisdom of the West. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Then she says this. But this spirit which traffics in children and abuses children is callous and fierce as a ravening beast and its wisdom descends from a sensual devilish place and this spirit alien to the land has settled upon it and made itself at home so that it's become a part of the culture and nothing but the touch of God will ever get it out so there's the issue here's her plea just listen to this we write to those who believe in prayer not the emasculated modern sense of just saying words, but in the Old Testament sense, the Hebrew sense, this deep and strong. We believe that there is some connection between knowing and caring and praying. And what happens afterwards? Otherwise, we should leave the darkness to cover the things up that belong in the dark. We should be forever dumb about them. And if it were not, that we know that evil covered up is not evil conquered. So we do the thing from which we shrink with strong recoil. We stand on the edge of the pit and look down and tell what we have seen, urged by the longing within that the Christians would pray. And so... She prays and she says, you know, you can't look at evil and cover it up. You, you've got to address it and call it what it is and pray for God in His almighty wisdom to do that which only He can do. It's, it's being compelled. And I ask you, I ask you, uh, are, are you compelled? As you are, are equipped and as you passionately worship, we should be compelled to make a difference? I think of people in our church who, who every week Give time and energy to the Low Country Crisis Pregnancy Center, Low Country Pregnancy Center now. But because we believe that life is precious and and life in the womb is to be protected and nurtured. I think of people who are involved in a recent ministry called Families Count, where, where, where the court gives people the option of coming here and trying to get their families together and, and be involved in a mentoring process. And you work with people whose marriages and families are just hanging by a thread. I think of people who work with their homeless in the area, or or even our re-engaged ministry that, you know, it's, it's, the re-engaged ministry is all about Jesus must be the center of your marriage. You can have all these, you know, behavioral modification deals by B.F. Skinner and his ilk, but if you're going to have the marriage you should have, it's got to be centered on the reality of Christ and his word. I think of this trip to Jordan. I mentioned in the other room we have a group of 30 or so people going to Jordan to work with refugees that are, that are from Syria. And they have these camps where hygiene is horrible. And we started a school and we'll start another school. But as we start these schools, we tell Bible stories. We're talking about Christ because we feel compelled to take the gospel out. Compelled. I think of a prison ministry that's been going on for so many years and reached so many men with the gospel. Or the correspondence ministry. that, that, that Many of our seniors are involved in this correspondence ministry with hundreds and hundreds of prisoners. Where they, they, they do Bible lessons and take tests, and there's, they write back and forth, and it's a wonderful thing. Because they're compelled. Because Christ must be preached if people are to be saved. And, and, we, and we do it, you know... We, you read the Bible, and, and you always come at it with, with the sense that, God, God, you've got to do it. But, but then you look at Isaiah 55 that says, the Word of God never returns void. And so you, you teach the Bible to your families. You teach the Bible to your kids. You teach the Bible. I talked to a parent after church this morning whose first service said, my, my child has walked away from her faith and it's breaking my heart. And I said, you know, just keep on praying because I believe God's Word doesn't return void. Just just keep on going. Just keep on pushing. Keep on pushing. Don't give up. And so I think about the guy on the front cover of the bulletin today, John Knox from Scotland. His people hated the gospel, sold him him as a slave to a galley ship for two years. He was was enslaved in like the Ben-Hur thing. Two years because he preached the gospel. He loved his country, Scotland. He was mentored and trained by by John Calvin. Served the French-speaking community of, and and the English-speaking community. Came back to to Scotland and just an incredible man. But but John Calvin said this, excuse me, John Knox said this, a a man with God is always the majority. (laughs) See? A man with God is always the majority. He said something else that I thought about. He said, you live with sobriety, listen to this, I never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. In other words, he says, Lord, do not let me misrepresent or downgrade or obscure your word. I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. So, so you, you step back and say, okay, Equip, pursue, impact. Where, where does this requisite energy come from? And that's why we've been studying the book of Colossians. Because chapter 3, verse 1, starts off with this prepositional phrase that says, Therefore, or since, or if. It can be translated either way. If then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. For, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is just kind of an argument. He says, you know, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above. And what was, he said, what does that mean raised with Christ? Here's what it means. Since you're having the life-giving energy of Jesus poured into your life and you have union with him, And you are in Christ. Since you have this life-giving energy being poured into you, therefore, set your hearts on the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. Not not on earthly things. For you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. It it, it says you don't know true spirituality. You're in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. In the verse we'll at next week, when Christ who is your life appears, you'll appear with him in glory. So, so, so th- therefore, I'll show you the way of true spirituality. You think about, you understand, you major on your union with Christ and what he's done for you as you receive the life empowering, sustaining grace from the Holy Spirit. Because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's called the session of Christ. Romans 3 says it this way Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Well, Christ is the judge. But he's the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. It's powerful. So listen, Paul says. Who's going to bring any charge against us? Well, the judge is Jesus, he died. he died on the cross for our sins, he rose victorious over death, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he sits, he sits at the right hand of God the Father in authority, with his ministry completed as far as dying on the cross for our sins, and listen, he reigns and he intercedes for us. now. That blows my mind. I, right now, the resurrected, ascended, reigning, eternal God, whose name is Jesus, is praying for his church and his people. Now, I hate the phrase, I can't get my mind around that, because I hear it 30 times every day. I'm, I really want to retire that colloquial phrase to the Hall of Fame. I, you know, but but, but I, the only thing I can say is this, I cannot get my mind around that. It is glorious, it's mind-boggling, it takes away your breath. The living God is praying for us right now. The only thing I can say is, wow, wow, unbelievable. He reigns in glory. Now, one of my favorite movies, stories and movies, is Robin Hood, and the, the Robin Hood with Kevin Costner, and then the latter one with, was with Russell Crowe, is very good. So here's the story of Robin Hood, told in various movies. Robin Hood um, uh, serves and loves the King of England named Richard the Lionhearted. Richard the Lionhearted, and Richard Lionhearted has gone to fight in the Crusades, and he's left his weak. Uh, dastardly horrific younger brother in control whose name is prince john and prince john has a sidekick who is involved in graft and corruption and overtaxation and usurping the authority that is due to the king and his the sheriff of nottingham and it's against law to kill deer in sherwood forest and they just tax people and they abuse people and it's bad. And Prince John is the polar opposite of the noble-hearted Richard the Lion-hearted. And so Robin Hood and his merry band of men flee to Sherwood Forest. They kill deer. They live off the fat of the land. And they protect people who are being subjugated to horrific penalties by the wicked, nefarious Prince John. That's the story. Richard the Lionhearted have, has heard these rumors... And so he comes back disguised to try to discern if they're true. And so he and a band of about seven guys slip into England, and they go to the local tavern. And they're dressed as monks with a big hood and big robe belt. And they listen in the alehouse to people talk. And they say, yeah, wicked Prince John, he did this, and he did that, and he did this, and they're taking notes. I said, well, it's worse than we thought, he's thinking. It says, but there is a man named Robin Hood in Sherwood Forest who honors the king and protects us from the wicked Prince John. And so Richard Lionheart says, I got to meet this guy. And so he and his band of brothers go galloping into Sherwood Forest in their monk robes. And pretty soon Robin Hood surrounds them with his men. He says, well, sir, monk, are you here as friend or are you here to to tax the people of Sherwood Forest beyond all bounds as you represent the wicked prince and defy the rightful king of England and Richard the Lionheart is great it's great and usually Richard Lionheart is played by a man in full bloom I mean a real man deep voice he's a man and at this point Richard the Lionheart undoes his belt and throws off his robe And he's sitting there with his shield and his sword, and it's got a lion with a cross in it. And he says, no, Robin, I am the king of England. And Robin Hood goes, whoa, and he falls on his face. And all the men will say, My liege and my king. Listen, there, there are people that write about Christ themes throughout scripture, throughout, excuse me, literature. They find the Christ theme from everything from High Noon to Harry Potter. You know, I, I don't always find those, but this is a the Christ theme. This is it. See, we're Robin Hood. We're Robin Hood. I'm Robin Hood. You're Little John. Well, we're Robin Hood. And, and we, we are waiting for the rightful king who reigns to come to earth. And until then, When the world's standards go against the standards of the gospel, we say, not on my watch. We're waiting for the rightful king. We will not bow the knee to totalitarianism or horrible ethical living. We are servants of the real king. That's a Christ theme. And so, so I look at this and I go, the Lord Christ died, rose, ascended. He's sitting in glory. He's going to come again. That gets me excited. Therefore, don't set your minds on the things of the earth. Set your mind on the things of heaven. Glory in the greatness of Christ. Okay. So, so I've got to hurry here, but... but just for example, Romans eight. We've been reading Romans eight, but let me just give you the thirty thousand foot of Romans eight. Just two or three or four themes, and then make some comments. No, no. So Romans eight, it just talks about glorying in the greatness of Christ. How, how do you how do you break the paralyzing nature of sin? You glory in Jesus. That's it. Your position in Christ, who Christ is in you. Romans eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I read this. And I think about the medieval church who said you can't know for sure that God loves you. You know why they could say that? They didn't have the Bible. They did not have the Bible universally, and that's why Martin Luther said we got to give people the Bible. That's why John Wycliffe and John Huss hundred years before we got to get the Bible in the hands of people because you read this stuff and you go fooey on your stuff. There's no th- th- see this passage. Th- there's no sense of well, I don't know if he really loves me. I don't know if he really cares. It's all declarative. It's all exclamation points and underlined red markers. No condemnation. Verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of fear that makes you fall back into craven, servile, attitudes but you received the spirit of adoption you're adopted as sons by whom we cry out dear 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 father there's no this is just a proclamation declarative that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God then he goes on and says verse 32 he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also along with him graciously give us all things you know these verses but it's all about I belong to Him, I'm in Him. And He says, "What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. How about distress? No. Persecution? Never. Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? No. And all these things were more than conquerors through Him who loved us." For I'm Convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor death, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God found in Jesus Christ. Take that medieval church. Take that semi-pelagians. Take that. It's just, it's all declarative. There's no uncertainty. So just two points. Two points. Number one, make much of Christ. Therefore, therefore, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above. where Christ is seated at the right right hand of God. Every day, rehearse who you are in Christ. Thank you for the greatness of Christ. Lord Christ, thank you that you love me. Thank you that in the fullness of time you became a man. Thank you. Make much of your, your, your standing in Christ. And see, let me say this. I say this frequently. I say it to myself. I say it to you. If you view your standing and your acceptance with Christ through your performance or through your emotion, we'll stay because our emotions come and go. But if you view your standing in, in Christ through what you do, you're going to be discouraged. I, I am. I'll just speak personally. When I I view my acceptance with God through my performance, I get discouraged. Because I have good days and bad days. I have good hours and bad hours. But if I judge who I am through the finished work of Christ upon the cross, I get happy. And I go to Romans 8 and I say, who can separate me from the love of Christ? Can can distress or persecutions or trouble or nakedness or famine or sword? No. Can height or death or created beings, or the past, or the present, or the future? No. So, so, so this passage, Paul saying, you want a, a real true spirituality? You glory in who you are in Jesus Christ. Number two, we have an ongoing issue of being equipped to think well. And, and, and some of these ongoing, let me just give you some ongoing verses. Chapter 3 of Colossians just says, put to death, therefore, present tense. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Or verse 12, put on them, present tense, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassion and kindness and humility and meekness. And and, and present tense, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called. How how in the world, how, how does that happen? Well, here's part of it, verse 16. You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You you let the word in your life. You think it. You you sing it. You ponder it. You you rejoice. God's liberating truth is my joy. C.S. Lewis has some great one liners. One of his greatest one liners is this His compulsion is my liberation. His compulsion is my liberation. Whew. God's good. He's given us his word. So I was, read a book a few weeks ago called "The Children of Monsters." And it is a historical overview of the 20th century and how the children of dictators turned out. And he goes through and he traces the children of Stalin, Mao tongue the ones that weren't illegitimate. Benito Mussolini had pretty good children. Adolf Hitler, we do not think, had a child. There's a rumor that he had a child, but we think that's not true. He talked about dictators in Central Africa Republic and how they lived and how they abused people. He talked about a guy named Nikolai Szesescu. Remember that name if you're older? The dictator of Romania. And Ceausescu had uh, two boys. One boy um, was a monster, was known for raping and pillaging and murdering. The other boy was a physicist who still lives in Romania. He he was a teacher. And and you go through this and and you talk about, there's a term used by Lewis in a book called Out of the Silent Planet that talks about bent people. And he says that we're all bent people, which means that, you know, sin has bent us. But we would say God's word helps straighten us out. Not completely, but it helps in the process of making us more like Christ. So we're all bent people. And in this book, he says that some of these children are horribly bent. He has some questions at the end. He said questions people might ask, who were the most gracious children of a dictator? And he said the children of Tojo, the leader of Japan in World War II turned out to be outstanding people. And he said, what children turned out to be the most heinously horrific? He says, that's easy. He says, the children of this man, Saddam Hussein. He said, the two boys of Saddam Hussein were horrific. That's the oldest boy, he was 6566. His name is Uday. He was killed by our troops in a firefight. When he was 38 or 39, Uday Hussein was known to go to a wedding in Iraq and walk in with armed men and seize the bride and take her somewhere for two weeks until so he was done with her and then return her. He was a monster. He, he, was, he, was, um, he killed his uncles. He would pick women up off the streets and molest them. He was a monster. And I thought about that a lot. And then I thought about what we've been exposed to the last few weeks coming out of Hollywood without going into detail about a man who had, uh, who for, for, for decades has serially abused women and, and berated the people around him, cursed them out, mocked them, belittled them. And, and I've read ton of editorials about this guy Harvey Weinstein I've read a ton of editorials and and I haven't read one that I would like to write but here's what I would write and here's here's my editorial there are certain people we're all sinners we're all bent but there are certain people who if they think they have total autonomy there's no oughtness in life Romans 1 says God gave them over to to a depraved mind because they did not do what they ought to do hear that? what they ought to do. So, so if we believe that we have total autonomy, that God is dead and I'm in control, and there's no oddness in my life, I answer to no one, and I have perceived unlimited power, whether it's in the, the world of the media or it's in the world of Iraq, whether I'm a, I'm a Uday or this guy, then, then it leads to bad, bad places. And, and that's why, conversely, we say God has established the home, the church, and the government to bring a liberating influence, a joyful influence to, my, to our lives. And, it, and so when God-given authority does the right thing, you have to realize it's for your good. Confession, example, I'll close with this. Eight weeks ago, we... Um, Had been on Sunday, long day. I had preached twice, did a funeral, did a wedding. Didn't even get to go home. Heading home, 1030, north 17. And uh, I'm driving. And I'm speeding. And I look up and there's a blue light behind me. I pull over. And one of Mount Pleasant's finest has a conversation with me. And let me tell you, if you're from Mount Pleasant, he could not have been more gracious, more diplomatic. He was wonderful. I mean, really, it was a, wasn't a good experience, but he was very kind. So he comes up to the little car, and he says, sir, you're speeding. I went, oh. I didn't want to give him eye contact. You know, you're caught. I said, y- yes, sir. I mean, he's probably 27. I'm, yes, sir. And I, he says, uh, he really gave me some outs. He said, are you rushing home to take care of a child that's in need? And I said, I didn't think of it at the time, but my son happened to be home from the West Coast. And if you define need very broadly, he needs a lot of help. But I, I, I couldn't think that quickly. So I said, no, sir, there's no child that needs help. And then he said this, he really was nice. Do you have a pet at home? Who, seriously, who, who, who you, need to, you need to take care of? says, I thought, can I lie I said no sir he said well give me your license and registration I did he's back there it seemed like two hours I'm going oh man he comes back and he says here Reverend Brown (laughs) he said I know you've had a busy day they said yes officer I have I said it's been a rough day at the Methodist Church I just want you to know that." (laughs) no I didn't say that I didn't say that but um, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to give you this ticket and, and he did, and he said, no, drive carefully. I said, yes, sir. Well, let me tell you something. Since I got that ticket eight weeks ago, I'm on 17, the speed limit is 45. I'm going 45, maybe 48, and I am being blown by by everybody else. I mean, people look, they pass me and look around and they like, where's your student driver decal, buddy? I mean, you're, I'm driving like a 110-year-old man. I mean, I've said, I'm not getting another ticket. I hadn't got a ticket in 40, what's the size of a sophomore at the Citadel? I guess that was in 1950. When was that? Anyway, a long time ago. I, I haven't had t- I've had two speeding tickets in the last six months. I'm on a roll. I want to stop that. I want to stop that. So I'm going, you know what? It's good for my soul. It's good for me. Because that's my God-given authority. And when God institutes his rule in my life, it is for my good. So if you pass me, and I'm going 45, that's why. Don't give me a dirty look and think, hey, old man, get with the program. I'm being a good citizen. So that's, that's, that's my story. Well, let's pray. we will close. Lord, thanks for this day, and thank you for the, just the privilege of studying the Bible. Thank you that it's just clear. Thank you that we don't sit around uh, asking, does God really love me? We just go to the cross, and we say, if God is for me through Jesus, who can be against me? And it gives us liberating joy and hope. And Lord, I just pray we'd be equipped to pursue Christ passionately, not to to just go for it, to to impact. I I pray we'd be compelled to impact our culture and our families, and as we go forward, we would speak the name of Christ in what we say and do, because you are God, and you're worthy of our worship. So we, we pray for those around us who do not know Christ, that, Lord, we would speak the word of Christ to them in Jesus' name. Amen.